Hi, I'm Bradley Tusk. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Firewall. You're about to hear my conversation with Tracy Chow. Tracy is one of Time Magazine's Women of the Year last year. More important to us, she's the founder of Block Party, which builds online tools for safety and anti-harassment. Block Party is a client of Pericles, which is a new equity for services business that my team has been putting together, working with early stage startups to help them solve their regulatory problems in return for equity. Um, it officially launched this week, so in a future episode, you'll hear much more about it from Bob Greenlee, who is running and overseeing Pericles and is a regular guest on Firewall. And you can also learn more about it on my Medium page. But for now, uh, here we are with Tracy. Thanks for having me. So here's my first question, which is, why is the internet so fucking toxic? the internet reflects people okay and unfortunately there's a lot of toxicity in human society the internet also makes it possible to get in touch with more people than possible before and so the chances you'll run into toxicity are much higher you could still run into assholes on the street but less likely to run into the same volume of them as right because they're not online. anonymous on the street and they are online so do you think basically humanity is as was just as bad, say, 500 years ago as it is right now, but the internet sort of facilitates seeing it in its worst form? Or do you think we actually have gotten worse because of the internet? That's a very good question. I think the internet has probably made things slightly worse. It's <laughs> connected people who maybe previously wouldn't have been able to get in touch with each other. And so there's a bit of this effect of putting bad people together and then that spirals and gets yeah. worse. But a lot of what is bad online was already bad about humanity before. So right. if you think about right. the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, all right. that bad yeah. stuff was... Genocide. Mm, yeah. was yeah. <laughs> that was already that bad exist. before. Yeah. Exactly. So all right. what led you... I mean, you, you had a very set of, you know, both unique and in some ways typical experiences um, that kind of led you from being you know, you know, another Silicon Valley tech worker to the founder of this really interesting company. What happened? Yeah, so my professional background is working as a software engineer. I worked at a number of different platform companies, at Facebook pretty early on, at Quora and Pinterest pretty early as well. I was involved in actually setting some of the site policy and building out moderation and admin tools when I was at Quora. So I have some of the inside perspective of having built social media platform mm -hmm. companies. Kind of in parallel to my engineering and product work, I've also done quite a bit around diversity and inclusion. Yep. One of the things I used to talk about to motivate why diversity and inclusion is important uh, was drawing that link between the lack of representation and diversity on teams and the quality of the products and services we're building. Yeah. There were a few times when I was asked various companies I worked at previously that I will not name here, what do women want? <laughs> well, it's good because you speak for all... <laughs> Four billion women, don't you? Especially as like a 22-year-old right. new grad in a room full of all men trying to represent what half of humanity wants was a tall order. And do you, do you think it was a sin of commission or omission? Was it like didn't occur to them that they couldn't figure out what lots of different people might feel without having different points of view and diversity on the team? Or do you think they delivered like, these are my friends from college and grad school and I just want to work with them? It's much more the sin of omission and the ease of working with people you already know and not having to go outside of your network and yeah. put in that extra effort. But it definitely meant that there were 
blind spots we had in building out products. Um, the first thing that I built when I was at Quora was the block button because even though we only had a few thousand users, somebody was already harassing me and I wanted to make it stop. And fortunately, as an engineer on the team, I could actually make that happen. You did it, and then how did, how did they react when you said, okay, we need to create this, this function? The team was totally fine with it. They were like, great, like, that, <laughs> that's a great thing to build, and you want to do it, go, go ahead and do it. Um, but in doing some of this diversity and inclusion work, um, I built more of a profile for myself online, and particularly on Twitter, yep. which then opened me up to a lot of this abuse and harassment. Uh, that I had actually talked about as being an issue with the homogeneity of these teams that have built many of the platforms, not necessarily anticipating how their products might get misused and how abuse might result from it. And was so, the abuse coming, I mean, I know it's sort of anonymized, you can't totally know, but was it coming from kind of within your own world of Silicon Valley where there was just resistance to it, or is it coming from sort of the average sort of person following Trump on Twitter and, and seeming to kind of hate people who aren't like them? There's a pretty wide range, and I think you might actually be surprised there are many folks who are not anonymous, who would just use their their names, their professional identities on these platforms. So I had everything from the kind of low-level trolling from yeah. maybe these like anonymous users, yeah. uh, so garden variety sexism and racism, to much more persistent and sustained harassment, also the more sophisticated gaslighting and misogyny. I had one person who was a professor of computer science at UC Davis opining repeatedly about how I was doing things incorrectly and how essentially I should just smile more and be happier and that would make men like me more. Is that is that professor still employed? Yes. Huh. Did you ever think about like just presenting those tweets to the ethics committee at UC Davis? I actually didn't. Um, I didn't think it was going to be worth the effort. Okay. Well, right. Instead, you went out and built a company to deal with it. So, all right. So how did you go from, you were having these experiences, you're sort of seeing it in real life, in real time, from going like, okay, this sucks, to building a block button to saying, I got to do more than that. Yeah, there, there were a few incidents that were particularly bad right before I founded Block Party, where I was dealing with uh, these harassment attacks that were really disruptive to my life, in fact, like, you know, many days or weeks of having to deal with um, some of these issues. And I was frustrated that there wasn't anything better. Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually am connected to a number of people who work at these platform companies. And so by appealing to my personal networks, I could get some of these accounts taken down. But that actually made me perhaps even more upset that I had special access. Right, because your average person can't. I don't want the systems to be such that I have special access. Like, what if I didn't happen to have gone to school with these people? I would just have to suffer. And um, I also thought about how much positive there was online and what I was getting out of it. Because people were telling me when I was dealing with these incidents, why don't you just delete your Twitter? Like, why don't you just log off? And I would react. So I was like, why, why should I have to leave? Right, like, yeah. I like, I like being here. I get good stuff out of being on Twitter and being online. I have a following here that I've built, built a lot of effort over a very long time. Yeah. And so there's all this good stuff, and the bad is threatening to make it so that it's not even worthwhile for me to stay anymore. But I, I don't want that to be the case. Um, I want to assert some of this agency and do something about this problem. Yeah. And I felt like maybe the best thing I could do was try to solve this problem for myself in a way that also would solve it for other people. So explain. it's funny, when, when you go online and look at the platform that you, that you built, 
it looks amazingly simple, which is actually usually the product of sort of the best design, right? Which is, you know, because it really is like, here are these four steps and now you're going. Uh, how, how does it work? How long did it take you to build it? And kind of what's been the experience so far? Yeah, the first thing I identified in my personal experience was the negative mental health impact that mm -hmm. seeing bad stuff was having on yeah, me. Yeah. Even just one insult in the middle of my day could throw me off and make me feel bad for sure. a few minutes, hours, depending on how bad it was. And so a lot of that personal experience went into the product design of how do we solve for that bad emotional impact we don't have to get that sophisticated about what are the rules for filtering things out or getting into the machine learning and being super fancy on the technical side, as long as we're solving the user problem, which is, I don't want to have this very negative emotional impact. Yeah. There are other things that went into it as well. Like, uh, the design of most platforms makes it so that if you are under attack, you are the only person that can do anything about it. So you are the only person who can go and report. You're the only person who can go and block other users. It's very overwhelming when you are being inundated by sure. a lot of trolls. But there are other people who want to help you. So your community often does want to help you if you have any any following. Many of those people are your fans and they want to be able to help or your other like trusted folks like loved ones or colleagues, they want to be able to help. And so building that into the product was also very important for us to think about like, how do we tap into the good side of humanity and right. the people who want to be a part of your community. So the initial product we built was quite simple. So for Twitter, we were looking at the app mentions and notifications you were getting when people tag you. And what we did was simply filter out the things that you might not want to see based on pretty simple heuristics like, does this person have a profile photo? How many followers do they have? Um, when did they create their account? Because oftentimes, these people who've just created their accounts in order to harass you have not right. gone too much effort to set up their accounts either. And so just filtering those people out made a huge impact. And then how do you filter that? But how do you then correlate that with something that would produce a negative emotion? Or are you just saying anyone who doesn't meet this criteria, you're just automatically blocked, whether you're saying something nice or bad? Yeah, so we were just looking at those user attributes yeah. and accepted that there was some risk of over-filtering. So there might be some people who are perfectly innocuous or saying nice things and just happen to be yeah. new accounts. But the way we designed the product also made it... Um, find that that would happen because we put those filtered users into a folder that you can review later. So you still have the ability to go through and see it. If the accounts that were filtered out were bad, usually the emotional impact of seeing them later is dampened because it doesn't have the same sort of timeliness. And you can choose when you want to go look at it. So you can decide, I'm going to go look at the What percentage folder. of people do you think go back and look at the folder? So it was interesting to see with our users early on, people would check the folders much more. Like users who are earlier in their journey with us yeah, check yeah. the folder more yeah, because yeah. they're not sure of what's getting filtered out. What we've heard from many folks is over time, they learn to trust that these heuristics or these rules that they've set work really well. And they don't actually care to go back and see those users that have been filtered out. And after they've gone through a few times and seen what they missed, they realized they were really not missing anything. And so it, it, like sometimes people will go back two weeks later, a month later, just to kind of glance through and make sure there was nothing that they really want to fish out of that folder. But for the most part, it's very easy to just now put that all aside and not have the uh, mental weight and the emotional weight having to deal with all of that. So 
take someone like me, though. So I, I do get attacked on Twitter plenty for various things I'm doing, politically, business, whatever. Um, but they're from people who might not kind of fit the heuristic uh, requirements that you put. There are people who are they're journalists, they're activists, they're professors, but they you know don't like whatever I'm doing. And I actually never go on Twitter because when I see a negative thing, it makes me feel bad. So I was like, fuck it, why do I need to go on this thing? Um, so what do you do if the attacks are coming from people that kind of aren't in that first category? There's a few different heuristics you can use. So we do allow our users to choose the rules that work for them. We have at a high level these different modes. You can say, I'm pretty open. So we're just filtering out the ones that look more obviously like trolls. You could also say, I need a break. And the rules are a bit stricter, so you can res restrict it to only people followed by people you follow or only verified users. Right. Verified is interesting now with some of the changes. <laughs> right. Recently. Verified means $8 a month. <laughs> right. Um, but there's different rules that you can apply. Um, I have found that muting keywords in people's bios can be helpful. Huh. So I get a lot of crypto spam, so muting. Right. BTC in people's bios works really well. Yep. Catches some people that I don't mean to mute, but that's okay. Um, so that might be effective, I think, uh, in situations where it can be a very polarized uh, topic of discussion where you might have, we see this like fandoms or uh, sports team rivalries. Yeah. Uh, being able to mute based on keywords in people's bios can be very effective as a first pass of filtering out a lot of things. You can still go look at them all later if you do want to engage, but it's just a little bit less in your face when they're tagging you and trying to get into your mentions in real time. Do you look at your folder? Every few days or so, yes, but not every day. And w when you look at the folder, does it, does it, you still feel bad or because you sort of know that it's after the fact, it just like gives you kind of some peace of mind that you didn't miss anything important without having the negative emotions? Sometimes it still feels bad, but it feels a lot less bad than okay. getting them all throughout the day. It's kind of batching it all up. And when I go in to look at my folder, I'm bracing myself where there may be unpleasant things in here. It is important for me, I think, to go back and see what's in there for general situational awareness sometimes. No. Are there a lot of people yelling at me? Or you know, is there anything I really do need to be worried about? Mm -hmm. um, I've had the situation before of people who are threatening me in a very serious way and because it had been hidden this is pre-block party uh, I had muted those accounts I didn't realize that they were making very serious threats wow. so the situational awareness of oh somebody is making threats against me like, even if I don't want to be push notifications of this all right. throughout the you day like I still need it. to know about it so I can go address it later right right so um Right now, you guys operate on Twitter. We'll talk about as you migrate to other platforms, but Twitter's undergoing a lot of change right now. If Elon Musk walked into the bookstore and said, okay, uh, what should I do, which seems like he could use plenty of advice right now, what would you tell him, not around sort of how do you maximize revenue for the company, but how do you make it a better experience and a safer experience for users? I think going more in the direction that Twitter was already heading before he took over the company, which is empowering users much more, having the API such that developers like Block Party can build out these different experiences for users is a really good thing. We've seen actually some of the users talking about like whether or not they're going to stick around on Twitter now saying, even though there is a lot of chaos and turmoil right now on Twitter and discussion about should we move to different platforms, they actually want to stick around on Twitter because that's where the best tooling is and they have the most control over their experience. Almost a little ironic. Um, and so in terms of opening up kind of the APIs and everything else, 
where are they now? I mean, clearly they're open enough that you're able to function. Um, what would kind of Nirvana look like for you if they just said, okay, we'll open this up as far as you think we should? Yeah, I think additional controls around what people are going to see in their timeline and recommendations in the other surface area throughout the product would be amazing. So right now, in terms of curating your home feed or timeline experience, it's a bit more limited in what you can do. What we're seeing some users do now is block a lot of people, and that just takes some things out of their home feed. But we could get a lot more sophisticated on that front. Uh, Jack Dorsey previously talked about things like algorithmic choice. That's something that most non-technical users probably don't have a sense for, but what that means is, in theory, if the API were to be more open, developers like Blog Party could build out home feed experiences that could be, I don't know, kid-friendly. Maybe you don't have kids on Twitter, but you could say, like, I want a more um, you know, a peer-reviewed scientific type of feed, mm-hmm. or I don't want to see political content because it makes me anxious and I only want to get it through a few different sources and not on Twitter. So you could imagine different developers building out these uh, more custom experiences that people can then choose from when they come to Twitter instead of just having whatever Twitter has decided should belong in their timeline. Right. Other platforms, so when do you start appearing on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever else? Yeah, we're working on uh, our cross-platform strategy now and starting to make moves into other platforms. One big limiting factor is that many of the other platforms are not as open as Twitter is. And so we're more limited in what we can do as a third-party developer to help customize people's experience. And is that because they think that they're losing some measure of control over it? Like, what, why did Twitter pre-Musk even decide that it was okay to let you guys sort of put these tools on their platform, whereas you know Facebook might say not on ours? Yeah, I think Twitter is moving in a strategic direction that a few other platforms are also following in now, which is recognizing that giving users more control is a good thing and decentralizing some of the build out of their product is a good thing. The sheer number of experiences that a developer ecosystem can build is just going to be so much greater than what the platform itself is going to be able to build. The platform is the only one controlling that experience. They'll build for the sort of average or the default but they can't build the custom experiences that... Right. And so by the way, I assume some of the custom experiences might come up with something that makes Twitter a lot more popular because it, people get excited about whatever this new idea is and it kind of does the marketing and outreach for them, right? Yeah, and so what Twitter has actually seen, uh, at least the, the pre-Elon Twitter, yeah. we're working very closely with a lot of folks there, they were very excited to see with Block Party is that our users who are using Block Party on top of Twitter... We're sticking around on Twitter more so than right. they would have been otherwise because yeah. they had more control over their experience. They might have slightly more specialized needs because these are people who are very active in posting and getting a lot of the engagement that they might not love. And some of these engagement metrics might have actually looked good to the platform, but in terms of the experience that some of these people were having, it was not actually very positive and long term would have led to attrition of these users. But with the additional controls that Block Party gave them, they're very happy to stick around. We had many of these users telling us, like, the only way I could still be here is because of Block Party. Right. And so this is a strategic bet from Twitter side. The decentralization is a good thing for the ecosystem. It's a good thing for the users that they can have the more fine-grained controls that they wouldn't be able to get from the platform itself. We're starting to see other platforms move in this direction. So uh, Discord and Twitch have a lot of APIs for people to build moderation bots, for example. Reddit has some of this tooling. So I think there's uh, some movement in, in the general tech industry towards empowering users more. The platforms that have not opened up, I think uh, there are two 
big reasons why they push back. One is, uh, I think, the mistaken idea that they need to retain very tight control over the experience to maximize profit. I think that's a mistake because if you're optimizing just for the average best, it's actually not the best for all users. And if you were to decentralize some of that control, it would overall lift the the happiness of, of your users right. um, on the platform. I think the other reason is uh, a fear of uh, privacy issues. So mm-hmm. the specter of Cambridge Analytica in particular for Facebook yeah, for and sure. the potential abuses there. I think that can be addressed quite easily uh, with just reasonable app store review policies. The number of developers you're gonna have on your platform is a very tractable number to deal with and you can actually review all the applications that are using the right. data and, and make sure that they're okay. Yeah. Um, I've spoken to many of the folks on the Twitter API policy team and they have said it was very possible to do this. So as long as you have the willpower, you can do pretty easy auditing to make sure that you know developers are doing what they said they would do and are not abusing user user data. Right. So you, you mentioned that in a way you guys help Twitter with their retention. So I have two teenage kids, right? And they both have this love-hate relationship with the platforms. I mean, they, they, they don't use Twitter because they're, they're 16 and 14, so they use, like, you know, Be Real and TikTok and Snap and whatever it is. Even Instagram to them is, like, a little outdated. Um, but, you know, you can see in real time that they're very conflicted, right? They sort of understand a lot of the harm that these platforms could cause. And at the same time, their lives and because of COVID, their schoolwork is so inextricably linked into these platforms that they don't really have the ability to escape it either, right? Like even earlier today, I lunched with my son and he, you know, school school break started and I said, was anyone around? And he went on Snap and he looked at Snap Match. He's like, this person, this person, and this person. And he said, this is creepy. And I said, yeah, it is kind of creepy. You don't have to use it. He said, well, then how will everyone know where I am? And I said, well, okay, that's the choice we have to make. Uh, how much do you worry about the, the sort of a, a movement of sort of Luddite teenagers just saying, like, I'm done with this entirely? I think we are going to be online. Yeah. That is the way society has moved. I also feel very conflicted sometimes about being on these various platforms. Yeah. So I also know some of the negative impact it has on me to see some of this content. Yeah. But so much of our society is now online, it's very hard to fully disconnect because you end up being cut off from a lot of your community or the connections you want to be able to make. Uh, I learn a lot from being online. That's how I get news. Uh, I think that's how a lot of people stay in touch with what's happening in the world and in their communities. I think the way that we can solve this going forward is give people more control so that they can tap into the, the positive aspects yeah. Yeah. instead of having to get everything with no choice, including all the negative parts. And what about a version for parents, right? So like, you know, for example, Instagram, it's rife with sites that promote eating disorders or cutting like really terrible things. It, as a parent, it's very, you know, you can say, I'm going to filter what my kids are searching, but you can't really do that in, in real life. Um, are there tools that either you guys could build or others that would let parents say, okay, the, these heuristics, no way? This is such a great question and something that we re- really do want to build. Um, there's this concept of middleware. So maybe introduce yeah, yeah. some of the policy concepts. So the idea of middleware is a layer that sits in between the users and the platforms. And what would enable developers of middleware is if they have more open access to these APIs. But if you do have this open access to APIs. You can imagine people building things like, this is a teenager-friendly version of 
Instagram yeah. that you can now experience. So you might be able to customize it to say things that are going to be harmful towards body image. Yep. Downrank those. Uh, if you're a parent, you have specific things that you're more concerned about being able to customize that and have that conversation with your kids. Say, like, okay, we're going to set these controls in a certain way. You can actually control that experience much more. Right now, you're at the whims of the platform deciding what's going to go into their feeds or what shows up in search. But you could imagine a layer, this middleware layer, that helps people to control that experience. And do you think we get to that? And what does it take to get to that? The thing we need right now in order for developers to build these experiences is access to the APIs. I think there's two potential ways to get there. One is the platform deciding that they want to open the APIs. And there are some that have already started to move in this direction, like yeah. we talked about, Twitter, uh, Discord, Twitch, Reddit. Maybe Instagram and Snap and the others will also move in this direction. The other way we get there is the regulatory path. Awesome. That was my next question. So I'm going to give you a, so one thing we have to do in this podcast is give the guest a magic wand around yeah. public policy and say, because right, we know some of the problems human nature, some of the problem is, is non-open APIs, closed APIs, and then some of it is just the utter lack of, of regulation or sort of action by the government. So you get the magic wand. Tell me what policies you're going to implement. I want open access to the platforms okay. so that developers of middleware like Block Party can build out these solutions that give users more control over their experience online. What about things like Session 230 in terms of right now it feels like the platforms have no real economic incentive to kind of avoid toxicity because we know that that drives more eyeballs, more clicks, therefore more revenue, and they can't be sued for anything. So they're sort of, you know, the, the alignment's completely not there. Um, would you keep 230 or would you repeal it? I will say, actually, just to give a little bit more context around the original intent of 230, it was giving users more control. Okay. And so if we go back to that intent, allowing people to have control over their experience online, what we can do in terms of regulation is enforce that platforms, potentially of a certain size, have to have some level of openness for other developers to act on the user's behalf. Maybe to make this more concrete, I think about uh, what we've built in, in terms of uh, our product on Twitter right now. Mm -hmm. Without Block Party, I could still go and mute and block people and take some of these safety actions on my own behalf. But at scale, it's very difficult. So if I'm getting hit with a wave of harassment, it's very tedious to go through right. and somewhat traumatic to go through maybe thousands or, or more people yelling at me. And what we've been able to do with Block Party as a technical solution is act on behalf of the user. And so Block Party can go and automatically take this action thousands of times on my behalf. So it's still doing what I want it to do, but at a scale that makes sense for a consumer web scale product and what that enables in terms of the various interactions. And, and more broadly, in terms of, you know, there's, there's user control over their experience on a platform. There's also user control over their data, ownership of the data, portability of the data. How do you think that should work? The more user control, the better. One of the things we're seeing right now, actually, in the conversations around Twitter and should people migrate off is that people who've spent a lot of time building their audience on Twitter can't easily move. There's a lot of professional reason to be there, yeah. in addition to the personal reasons of potentially really enjoying the platform. But people who run their businesses on Twitter and use it for lead gen, um, general professional like networking and awareness, yeah. it's very difficult to move somewhere else. And so that is kind of like a lack of data portability. It's like in theory, right. I you know I could try to 
pull out all the people I follow, people who follow me and all my content. But in practice, that doesn't do anything for me because I no longer have the audience if I try to right. go somewhere else. So being able to take that with me, putting that control in the in the hands of users is, again, also very important so people aren't stuck where they don't want to be. So you split, we're going to ask all kinds of questions about London and New York that have nothing to do with, with Block Party, but because I'm curious, but putting that aside, right now you do spend your time between London and New York. The European rules, GDPR, the Digital Markets Act, um, seem much more consumer-friendly. Um, what's your take on that, and is Europe getting it right and the U.S. getting it wrong, or is Europe overreaching? I think the general intent of protecting users more is good. And some of the previous regulation, like GDPR, I've heard actually from folks who work in tech companies that it has changed the way that they go about their engineering and not collecting all the data they could. In the past, it might have been a stance of whatever data we can get, we'll just collect it because why not? And now they're much more thoughtful about that. So that is good. There are potential side effects that are not so desirable when things are not implemented well. So the experience of being online, if you're in the EU, is every site has a cookie. Do you accept Yeah, it's annoying. It's very annoying. But now I feel like we're seeing it here too. It's not nearly as bad. I think it is. Every time I go back to Europe, I think like, oh my gosh, like I've entered a new zone of the internet. It's also more burdensome for small companies to have to implement. And so there are these follow-on effects of like, does it stifle some innovation because it makes it harder for new businesses to build up in something where like the big companies with more resources can actually handle all the right inadvertently is it building actually a moat for the people that you're actually trying to limit their power to a certain extent yeah Um, so yeah and that's where i think sort of the the third piece that puzzle becomes antitrust right And, and the more that you empower the ftc and the federal government doj to break up companies that have too much market power, the more it sort of enables those smaller competitors to, to not be boxed out of the market and to, to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last question on this is, we're in a world right now where we're kind of moving towards Web3, Metaverse, whatever you want to call it. It seems to me that all the risks that you are aware of and trying to protect people from become significantly worse um, in a fully immersive internet. Um, is that true? Do you worry more about it? Is it the same? How how do you view it? I don't worry about it that much right now because there's not that many people there yet. And what we have seen is that there can be quite emergent behavior that we don't anticipate until it happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think it makes sense to try to anticipate some of the obvious harms that will result. And we've already seen some of the harassment that's pretty bad in VR because it's full body and people getting groped in VR, that kind of thing, where it is quite bad. And I think we should try to anticipate some of those obvious harms that are going to result. But I think some of the more uh, difficult cases that will arise in the future, we don't even know what they are yet. So how do you... Okay, so we we know that sort of harassment, groping, all that, because we've already seen it happen. Um, What are the tools? How do you you prevent that? I think there's a few ways to try to address these harms. One is in the building of the technology in the first place, having more thoughtful, diverse, representative teams being held to a higher standard of what they're going to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about privacy or ethics by design and thinking about things in the design phase as opposed to retroactively trying to solve the harms. Those are like at that level of when we're building new technology and new experiences, trying to think about what we're enabling and 
trying to preempt some of those harms and build in some of those safeguards. I think to go back to the, the middleware side of things and what is possible, like allowing users more control uh, via alternative experiences that another set of developers can provide is also one way of addressing these harms, just giving people more choice instead of being stuck with whatever the platform has decided to prioritize or not prioritize. Right. It's it's interesting because ultimately the totality of everything you're saying is an alternate argument or way to attack the same problem. So I spent a lot of time on this podcast, you know, railing about section 230 and privacy and antitrust because I come from government. So to me, government should be providing solutions to this thing. And you're providing sort of a market-based solution that says we don't have to sort of force all of these things necessarily onto the big platforms. We just have to require them to enable other third-party developers, and the third-party developers, in many ways, can provide the tools to solve a lot of these problems. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look I at it. I think historically people have thought that it's either the platforms or the government that can provide solutions. Yeah. And so we spent a bunch of time railing against the platform saying, do better, do better, and then we realized that they weren't going to do better. No. And people turned to the government and said, Okay, do something here. Make them do better, yeah. But government works at a different pace than tech companies. And there are risks to being too reactive and solving for problems that exist right now, but not anticipating things that may come in the future. I think the role of government is to be a little bit more deliberative and thoughtful about what it's doing. And so to try to use government to solve all of the immediate harms that we see on technology feels a bit mismatched, but we can have the government enforce that platforms have a level of openness, which enables what you're saying, the market-based solutions. Right. Um, all right, so be- be- we were chatting before the podcast. You told me something that, to me, seems slightly crazy, which is, I said, where do you live? And you said, oh, London and New York. Um, how did that happen? Why do you do that? And like, what do you like better about each? What do you, what do you both like, and what's better about each city and what's worse? It was a little bit of an accident that I ended up in London for the last few years. I went to the end of February 2020 for what was meant to be a three-week trip. And the date of my scheduled flight back ended up being the date that Trump put out his Europe ban. I could have come back because I'm an American citizen, but I did not want to deal with all of that headache and traveling while COVID was clearly sure, spreading. Sure, right. And who knew what it was at that time? So I decided to stay in London and go into lockdown there. And I really like London, so. So you end up like renting an apartment and all that? Yeah, so I have a flat there. I love London. Do you have, you have friends? Do you have like kind of a whole community there? Yeah, I had spent a, a good amount of time in London previously, so I had done an entrepreneurship program there, and that was actually how I had a visa so I could stay. So I happened to have this amazing visa that enabled me to stay for the last few years. Um, and so by chance, I already had a bit of a community, and... It actually t- uh, lined up really well with me working on Block Party because in those early days of the company, I just needed to be heads down building. So I built most of the original Block Party product. Um, so it was just a lot of like heads down during right. lockdown, just coding all the coding, time, yeah. doing all the work. And I think generally the world was in lockdown or being a bit more um, circumspect about social engagements, yeah. but it was very easy there in particular because the UK had quite strict lockdowns where we weren't allowed to have uh, indoor mixing with other households. So it was very easy to just work all of the time. What do you like? What do you like best about New York? What do you like best about London? 
I am American, so I'm still, uh, I, I feel the sort of American connection to like being in New York. I have more friends here. Um, so I think that community is just stronger for me. It's a very personal thing. I just, I've grown up in America and, you know, been here most of my life. Um, I don't know if I can say that. I like, I prefer London. That's fine. I think that's legal <laughs> so far. Yeah. Um, I like the history and the culture of the city. Mm-hmm. It's much more international. So New York is probably the the most international yeah. of American cities, but it still doesn't quite feel the same as London does. Right. Um, the easy access to parks all throughout London is awesome. I love to run. So being able to run through all of these royal parks, run yeah. along the Thames, super fun. I like traveling, so being able to get to the rest of Europe easily yep. is amazing, whether it's by train or a short flight. Uh, a few weeks ago, I decided to go to Paris on a whim, and I could do that for the weekend. Right. Super easy. Right. On so it's one car. of those things like a dream, like, let's go to Paris on a whim, for the, let's go to Rome for the weekend, and like, you can actually do it. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so many different cultures, cuisines, histories. That's just very fun. So then last question, uh, for an American listening to this podcast, visiting London, three non-obvious things that, that you would recommend they check out? I would say actually spend some time outside of the city. So you can take the train and go into the countryside or to the seaside. So you could take the train down to Brighton area and go hike along the, um, the Seven Sisters. These mm-hmm. like chalk cliffs is one thing. Um, the history is very fun. I was just at the Churchill War Rooms. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And so going down into essentially like the, the bunker, the basements where they orchestrated yeah. the response to World War II was pretty fun. And what else would I say? Um, Favorite restaurant in London? I like Bar Shoe. It's a Sichuan restaurant in Soho. Okay. It's funny. It's, I think it's actually the best Chinese food I've had anywhere. Huh. And it's and it's, it's in London. This yeah, restaurant real, in Soho, that's London. A, that's yes. a real Chinatown. Yeah. Cool. All right. So those are the three things. All right, uh, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.